you would give us ears to hear. You would give us open hearts to understand uh, and be changed by your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do you guys look so surprised? Were you worried I wasn't going to show up? Yes? Did anybody feel a little bit of anxiety? My guess is that unless you were one of the few people I told that I was going to start this way, you felt a little bit of anxiety. Maybe you were a little worried. Maybe you were concerned that something is not right about this situation. Because normally, we pray, and when you lift your head up, the preacher is standing up here. But this time, that didn't happen. Maybe you felt like you needed to rescue the situation and jump up here and calm everybody down and say, it's okay, we'll find him somewhere. We don't know where he is. Or maybe you started in your heart quietly praying for me that I might be found. And I want to thank you if you did that. (laughs) Or maybe you thought, what's the point? Why did I come here to church? Why did I even come to this gathering if the preacher's not even going to show up? Might as well go home. Why did I come in the first place? If you experience anything like any of those things that I mentioned, you might get a small sense of what the disciples and the followers of Jesus felt at the end of the book of Mark. See, the book ends with the women running to go tell others about what the angel told them. And they had gone to the tomb, and Jesus wasn't there. It was empty. So it was a very strange situation. Totally not what they expected. So the the book of Mark ends not on the question of where is the preacher, but it ends with, where is the king? Where is he? If you look on your outline, you can see that there are two points that we hope to cover this morning. First is, where is the king? And the second is, we're going to answer that question, and it's to know the king. So let's start with the first one. The, uh, the book of Mark ends with uh, a bit of controversy, and we'll get into that in a second. Uh, But Dan led us in chapter 16, verse 8. And uh, if you want to flip open your Bibles, you can look and read along at the end of Mark. I'm actually going to be reading from my Bible. If I go anywhere else, I'll lose this. So this is NIV, 1984. So it might be a little bit different than what you see uh, in the church Bible, which is ESV. Uh, But we're going to do lots of flipping today in different verses. So that's why I'm sticking with what I know. But anyway, 
Verse 8 ends with this. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Period. The last word of the book of Mark, officially, like I said, we're going to get into the controversy, but officially, that everybody agrees with, is the word afraid. All right. So scholars tell us that there's no significant disagreement with everything before that. And it's verse 9 where things start to get a little iffy. If you look at your Bible there, it says some kind of caveat like the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. So what are they talking about? When they say earliest manuscripts, what they kind of mean is the earliest copies of the Bible that we currently have, and there are many, many, many copies that we have that attest to the Scriptures. But some of the best ones that we have don't have this section of Mark in them. And by ancient witnesses, what they mean is the early church fathers who commented on the Bible. And we can even piece together what they saw of as the Bible through their writings. And we have those. And some of the most uh, trusted ones don't reference this part in Mark. So there's definitely some controversy over this. So when I was assigned to preach on this passage, I was like, whoa, what's going on here? Uh, so let's get into it. How do we view this passage? How do we think about this passage? Bible teacher John MacArthur has some helpful thoughts in his commentary on Mark. He says this. He says, while for the most part summarizing truths taught elsewhere in Scripture, verses 9 through 20 should always be compared with the rest of Scripture. And no doctrines should be formulated based solely on them. Since in spite of all these considerations of the unlikely or the unlikely unreliability of this section, it is possible to be wrong on the issue. And thus, it is good to consider the meaning of the passage and leave it in the text just as with John 7, 53 to 8, 11. If you're familiar with John 8, it has that little caveat too. So John MacArthur gives us some helpful perspective on how to proceed with this passage. Uh, another way to think about this passage, since we're sort of treading on maybe unsure territory here, is to think of this as sort of a very old sermon. Something that is not authoritatively Scripture, but super helpful in helping us to understand what Scripture is teaching us. That's another way to look at it. So let's look at some of the elements here. Mark 16, 9 through 20. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom He had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with Him and who were mourning and weeping, when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, "'Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation.'" Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, 
And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. All right, so you can see that this is a much cleaner, if you will, ending than verse 8, ending with the word afraid. And there's some things in here that help round out the story. You see that it tells us that Jesus rose on the first day of the week. It gives us Mary Magdalene's witness. You see the same story that's that's told in more detail in Luke 24 about the, the road to Emmaus story, the two men. Jesus appears to the 11 disciples and rebukes them for their lack of faith. You see that in, at the end of the other Gospels. Verse 15, you have a great commission where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach to all nations. Very similar to Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the great commission, what we typically refer to that as. Um, you see verse 16, uh, an echo of a couple of things that are in the Gospel of John. He says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Who does not believe uh, stands condemned, will be condemned already. And this is very similar to John 3.18, John 3.36, and other passages. You also have an ascension passage here that is, uh, I believe, not mentioned in the book of Matthew or John, but only Luke. So there's lots of repetition in this section of other Gospels. There's not really a new truth that doesn't exist in the other Gospels. Uh, even in the sort of the, the weird part about the, the snake biting and where some of those folks get the snake handling from, verses 17 through 18. You know, you could even look at passages like Matthew 10 where Jesus says, I'm going to send you out and you're going to perform miracles and these things are going to happen. And you see that in the book of Acts. You see Paul like grab a snake and stuff. So, um, and he doesn't die. So you see echoes of that. Uh, again, nothing, nothing shockingly new there. So the bottom line is that there's no unique doctrine or teaching here that would shape our view or understanding of who Jesus is, what the gospel is, uh, or God's plan for the whole world. But it does end on a cliffhanger. Now, one of the theories is that folks who were involved in the process of writing the Bible wanted a cleaner ending to the book of Mark. And again, we don't know this for sure, but that there was an attempt to piece together what they knew of the story from the other Gospels to round out the book of Mark. But I believe you don't need this end to understand you know, what Mark was trying to purpose in his book. Because at the end of verse 8, if you end there, what you have is Jesus sacrificed and resurrected, because he promised he would. You have Peter restored, and you have a promise that Jesus is going to come back and meet with them again in Jerusalem. And he had talked the whole time about what his plan was. So while it could seem that uh, Mark would maybe fail his uh, writing class for ending so abruptly, perhaps I, I would like to argue that he actually got an A plus because of his purpose of what he's trying to do. He's trying to leave you on the note of what am I going to do with Jesus? What am I going to do? It's right in your face. It's not, it's not the nice, clean ending. It's the sermon that starts without the preacher. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? So here we're going to take a step back and look at the whole of Mark to answer this question, where is the king? 
Remember, it, it ends with this trembling, bewilderment, confusion, and fear. And the answer we're going to see is found in who Jesus is. And He will be our comfort because He says these things are going to happen and you do not have to worry. You do not have to fear. So let's move on to point number two. Answer is to know the King. Have you ever considered that you interpret people's actions by how much you know them or how well you know them? For example, if you know someone that's always early. I mean, they are always at least 10 minutes earlier. If they are five minutes early, they consider themselves late. And so you're at an event and you're expecting them to show up and they're a few minutes late. You would start to get maybe a little bit concerned versus if you had another friend that was chronically late all the time and it's a few minutes late. You wouldn't think anything of it. It's because you know that person and that's how it shapes your interpretation of the situation. One of the key things going on at the end of Mark is that Jesus wanted his followers to rely on his promise more than they trusted their eyes. He said it was going to happen, and he said, don't worry about it. For example, Mark records many times Jesus being very clear about what was going to happen to him. Let me just read a few of them. Mark 8, 31. Like I said, we're going to do lots of flipping today, unless my pages don't stick together. 8.31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And then Peter took him aside to rebuke him. Chapter 9, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept this matter to themselves, discussing what risen from the dead meant. Verse 31 of chapter 9. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill Him, and after three days He will rise. But they did not understand what He meant, and they were afraid to ask Him. See a theme going on here? Chapter 10, verse 33. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Another uh, repeated word. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Hopefully that's enough evidence at this point. We'll move on. <clears throat> so, to get the answer that we're looking for, knowing the king, we need to know who this king is and what else did he say. Those are some of the things he said. What else did he say and who is he? And so our remaining time... On your outline, you'll see four characteristics of the king that we will cover. They're on your outline, right? I didn't look at it. Yes? Okay. All right. First is his character. Flip over to Mark chapter 1. The first clue we get about this king's character is we answer the question, who is the king by knowing the king, is we look at his appointed herald. John the Baptist was appointed by God to be the herald for the king. And verse 6, 
we see this very strange and weird description. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. Okay, that is weird. And it's in there on purpose to tell us the herald of the king is a humble guy. And he's is this aloof guy out in the wilderness eating honey and locusts. And you'd ask yourself, this is the herald of the glorious king? This like weird guy? With weird clothes, like scratchy, itchy clothes? Camel's hair? And then in verse 7, right after this, his message is that he's not worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. This is the herald of the king? This is the humble, humble beginning that Mark wants us as the audience to realize about this king. And by way of application, just at this point, consider John the Baptist, the, the officially appointed herald of the king. He was not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And that was his perspective. Do you have this humble view in your heart of the king? Or look at it the other way, do you have a high and awe-filled view of who God is? And I don't, at least I don't think of myself, oh yeah, I could untie his shoes. I don't have that view that I am totally unworthy to be even near this king. Flip over to Mark chapter 10, verse 45, or maybe you have it memorized. If not, memorize it. Jesus says, in the midst of a fight among his disciples over who is the greatest, he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You know, our children fight sometimes over things. And as a parent, it's kind of funny that, yeah, funny or interesting, that they'll fight, like say there's a cookie or something, and they're all going to get one. And one is like, one micron bigger than the other. I mean, kids have an amazing sense of measurement. <laughs> and they'll fight over that. And you think, why are they fighting over a micron difference? It's not even never notice. I think God sometimes sees adults. Why are you fighting over that? Or why are you... Anyway. So I usually, in these situations, take a page out of Jesus' playbook. And I'll say, all right, stop, stop, stop. I have a question for you guys. Who wants to be the greatest? Everybody's hands go up. Oh, I want to be the greatest. What did Jesus say? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And those who serve will be the greatest. So, you want to be the greatest? You give up your preference for your siblings. This is what Jesus did. He came to serve, and I said, in the context of a fight over who was the greatest. He said, follow my example. This is the king. He backed up what he said, and there was no sense of hypocrisy with this king. This is his character, and it's trustworthy. Now let's move on to his word. What did he say? What was his message? Back to chapter 1, Mark, verse 15. You could argue that this is the main message of Jesus throughout the book of Mark. 
Jesus said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. He says, repent, which means turn away from your sin. Give it up. Stop doing it. He says, believe, which is the other part. You don't just turn away from your sin. You turn away from your sin and you turn towards Jesus. And He's the one on whom your hope rests. And He says, believe the good news. What is this good news? What are you embracing? What are you turning towards? It's the Gospel. It literally means good news. And what is this good news? It's the whole Bible. It's the whole story that God wants to tell us. In a nutshell, it's that you deserve justice for your sin, yet Jesus takes the punishment for you so you can be forgiven. Consider this. Have you ever significantly been wronged? Or maybe you've certainly had this happen, where you've heard or witnessed someone else be wronged an injustice done to someone else or yourself. And what do you want in that moment? You want justice to be done, right? Go arrest that guy. Put him in jail. He deserves the electric chair for that. Or maybe even worse, we want justice for for this guy or this woman in this situation. But yet, if you were that person and other people were saying, we want justice to be done to you. What's your first thought? You don't want justice. You want mercy. We want mercy for ourselves. We all want justice until we look at our own hearts. Again, then we want mercy. And if you repent from your sin and believe the good news in Jesus, you have forgiveness of sin. Jesus takes the punishment for you. So that is his main message. Now, he also says, flip over to chapter 12, verse 27. He also gives us a warning not to mess with the Bible and not to mess with his words. The context here is the Sadducees came up to pick a fight with Jesus and, you know, they're, they're kind of taking the Bible out of context. And then verse 24, Jesus says, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? And then look at verse 27. He says, He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. Don't get this wrong. Don't mess with His words. It's a very severe warning. His message also includes a note on timing. Go to chapter 13, verse 37. He says, Watch what I say to you, everyone. Watch. And He's talking about the day of His return is unknown. The timing is unknown. So his point is that now is the time. Do not delay. Repent and believe the good news. Don't try to twist it to what you want it to say and believe it right now. That is his message. And so what this means for us is that if you know you need to turn away from something, if you know that you need to repent of something, do it now. Do not delay. If you need to go talk to someone, talk to them. If there's a sin you need to give up, give it now. Give it up now. And turn away and believe the good news. Do not delay. So Jesus' message is to repent and believe the good news. 
Don't mess with his words or delay in responding to it. That is his message. What are his terms? Jesus came to the world to give the world the best deal it has ever known. But it did come with some terms. They're very good terms, but you need to understand them because you don't want to follow him haphazardly. So in this transaction, there are things that you give up and there's things that you get. Look over at Mark chapter 8. Verse 34. I'm going to read down to 38. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory and with his holy angels. So it's a transaction. What do you give up? Jesus says you must take up your cross and deny yourself and follow his way of persecution, of him being persecuted and sacrificing yourself for others. This may not mean that everyone literally goes to Palestine and is hung on a cross by a Roman executioner. But it does mean that you follow in his footsteps in sacrificing for others and giving up your life. It will feel like death, but submitting your life to God's hands is what Jesus is talking about. Doing His will, not your will. If He calls it a sin, you turn away from it and believe the good news. This is giving up your life. And what do you receive? You receive forgiveness of sin, a life with God, purpose, joy, meaning. And most importantly, you get Jesus' life and His reward. You get the reward of the King Himself by following Him. Jesus wants exclusive devotion. And remember, though, that He is very polarizing. There's a clear dividing line, and that's why I said that you, do, you should not follow haphazardly. And if you're on the fence with Jesus, consider carefully what He says. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 6. It's a little illustration of what I mean. So the book of Mark is 16 chapters long, and I don't know if you ever noticed this before. 16 chapters long, and the book starts with healing after healing after healing. Jesus says, you know, people should be praising him for all the healing that he's bringing and joy that he's bringing to people's lives. People who couldn't walk can walk, and people can't see can see. People who are sick are not sick anymore. 16 chapters long, two and a half chapters into the gospel of Mark, where Jesus is doing nothing but healing people. Let's see, that got your attention. <laughs> He's doing nothing but healing people. Chapter 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodians how they might kill Jesus. I don't know, what percentage is that? Two and a half over 16. That's how long it took for them to come to the conclusion, we have to kill this guy. So you see what's going on here is that if you don't love Jesus, if you don't understand who he is, you're going to hate him. He wants exclusive rights to your life. And if you don't give it to Him, you're on that camp that hates Jesus. You can't love Him. So Jesus wants you to love Him. Do you love Him? Do you identify with Him? 
Do you stake your reputation on him? Even when physical harm is in jeopardy. These are hard things. I don't want to make, make light of them. I mean, I need to repent. I'm thinking about this point and thinking I buckle under the smallest of afflictions so many times. And actually, when you think about it, they're not real afflictions. They're perceived afflictions. Like, what will they think of me if I'm talking to my neighbor or a friend or someone else and I bring out my faith? And I buckle under that. Jesus wants those who love Him to stand up for Him in all ways to the end because we are His and we love Him. That are His terms. Those are His terms. They're not negotiable. You give up your life. Jesus gives up His life. But you get the King's reward and you get forgiveness of sin and unity with God. The greatest thing the world has ever known. Finally, let's look at His sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed in order to bring healing and bring life. Like I said just a moment ago, lots and lots of healings in the book of Mark. There are physical and there are spiritual healings. The physical healing is, again, one of those big themes. So flip over to Mark chapter 10. This is what I believe is the last physical healing recorded in the book of Mark before Jesus goes to the cross. And it fits with our theme here, so I wanted to highlight it for you. This is the story of blind Bartimaeus at the end of chapter 10. And so he's yelling and yelling, and he comes to Jesus. They were trying to get him to quiet up. And verse 51, Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Now, at that moment, could he see the king? Where's the king? Couldn't see the king. Verse 52, Go, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. The veil was lifted. He saw the king. There he is. But what about later? Later on, right after this, Jesus does not protest when he's facing an unjust trial where he is under a death sentence. And again, he told his disciples this would happen. While he physically heals others and gives them sight, he is physically harmed. There's lots of focus and detail in, in the Gospel of Mark about his suffering at the end of the, the Gospel. And there's so many references to Jesus healing people and him so many references to him suffering that actually one uh, commentator called the book of Mark a passion narrative with an extended introduction because there's so much given to Jesus' suffering. So... He heals physically and gives up to heal physically. Now, spiritually, flip over to chapter 15, 32. Jesus is on the cross. He's being mocked. Let's actually start in verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe it, or believe Him. And those who crucified with, those crucified with Him also heaped insults on Him. Where's the King? 
They could see Him. He was right there. But do they see Him? No. They wanted to see And I, you may, could argue that their, their request was even reasonable. If He really was the King, why doesn't He do something? But they totally missed it. I mean, they, they picked up their story of Mark uh, at verse 30. Where He looks like a criminal, like everybody else who may, maybe made false claims. They didn't read everything before. They don't know who this King is. Because if they did, they wouldn't say those things. They would see Him physically and see Him in their hearts. To them, He didn't look like a king. And this is the crux of the issue. Where is the king? You will only see and know Him if you repent repent and believe and believe on His promises. Only if He is your king will you see Him. So, do you see Him? You may sit here today and what do you see? You see a guy in an orange shirt? You see blue chairs? Walls, building, other people. But do you see the king? Where is he? Where's the king? Do you see him? Not too long ago, I had a, a, some harder personal disagreement in a conversation, and I had to ask myself, where's the king? Where's the king in the midst of this when I just want to fight for my own rights? And the Bible tells us that Jesus is with us Matthew 28, I'm with you to the very end of the age. So the king is here. And I'll tell you what, that'll change your perspective when you start thinking that way. The king is here with us, even though we don't see him physically. So how often do you consider, where's the king? Maybe something doesn't go the way you want. Where's the king? Or maybe your expectations are not met or hardships happens. Where is the king? Do you see Him? Or maybe simply when you wake up in the morning and get out of bed, where is the King? Where is He? So, Jesus' sacrifice demonstrates that this King brings healing and restoration. Those are just four of the characteristics that we have time to look at this morning as we get to know who this King is. Now, Maybe you're still wondering. We still haven't actually answered the question. Where is this king? Well, for those of you that like clean endings, we're going to answer it. I guess it maybe would be more fitting to just end right now. But we'll have a conclusion. So, chapter 16, in the disputed section. Verse 19 After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, He was taken up into heaven, and He sat at the right hand of God. Whether your view is this is Scripture or this is not, actually doesn't matter to answer this question. Do you know why? It's because it was predicted thousands of years before the answer to to the question, where's the king? Psalm 110, verse 1. Does anybody know it? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is where the king is. He is seated at the right hand of God. Enemies are being made a footstool. His work is done. That's what the seated means. He is seated. His work is done. And that's where Jesus is at. 
The work is done. Your salvation has been paid for. Sin has been removed. Repent and believe the good news. And when you do, you will see the King. Let's pray. God, thank You for our time together this morning. Thank You that we have Your Word that we can trust in. We can see Jesus clearly through it that we may believe in Him. Thank You for the words of eternal life. Thank You for the, the clear explanation of what it means to follow You and to know that we can have life. Jesus, thank You for Your example. Thank You that You lived a perfect life. You did not waver at all from what You said, what You promised, who You said You were, and what You were going to do. It was fulfilled perfectly. Help us to follow in Your footsteps and always rely on You, especially when we fail, to remember where is the King. Help us to see You in our hearts and minds so that we're prepared that one day we will see You with our eyes. We pray this in Your name. Amen.